0: Part 3 of an excursion to the lakes in Westmorland and Cumberland August 1773 By William Hutchinson This LibriVox recording is in the public domain IN AND AROUND Penrith We regained the little inn at the foot of Dunmorlet Where our horses waited for us And returned towards Penrith, delighted with our voyage In our conversation, enumerating the wondrous And enchanting scenes to which we had been present till we reached Delmaine, the seat of J. Hazel Esquire. The rich woods which are spread around this mansion, together with its handsome stone built front, gave us expectation, whilst we saw it in the morning at a distance, that it would be still more pleasing on a nearer view, but we could not forbear turning our eyes away in disappointment, when we perceived the approach and court, kept no better than a stable yard. A little ramble took place in the ensuing morning, On our way we were shown the tenement in which, by the great Tempest, some few years ago, Miss Bolton and her female friend were overwhelmed in the ruins of their house, over whose untimely monument, even piety lets fall a tear, and resignation bows to heaven with sighs, whilst hope in holy whispers tells, that innocence and virtue, called from hence, become angelic. We viewed the ruins of Penrith Castle, it is said to have arose on the foundations of a Roman Fortress, the traces of which are not now to be discovered. The buildings form a square, and are situate on a rising ground, surrounded with a ditch. The site towards the town is much more elevated than on any of the other quarters. This front consists of the remains of an angular tower to the east, which now stands separated from the rest by the falling of the walls. The centre, which projects a little from the plane of the front, is hastening to decay, presenting to the eye broken chambers, passages and stairs. This part of the building is still connected with the Western Angular Tower, an open hanging gallery forming the communication. Below this gallery, a large opening is made by the falling of the building, forming a rude arch, through which, and the broken walls to the east, the interior parts of the ruin are perceived in picturesque manner. Nothing remains within, but part of a stone arched vault, which, by its similitude to places of the like nature, which we had formerly seen, we conceived to have been the prison. From thence we went to view a place by the inhabitants called Arthur's Round Table, near to Yeoman Bridge, and within about half a mile from Penrith. This is said to be of great antiquity, but there is no tradition when, by whom, or for what purpose it was made. It is cut in a little plain, near to the river, of an exact circular figure. Save to the eastern and western sides, an approach is left on the common level of the plain. The trench which is cast up, and by which it is formed, is near ten paces wide. The soil which has been thrown up on the outward side, forms a kind of theatre. The approaches are ten paces wide, and the whole circle within the ditch is one hundred and sixty paces in circumference. We were induced to believe this was an ancient tilting ground, where, in days of chivalry, tournaments had been held. The approaches would answer for the career, and the circle seemed sufficient for the champions to show their dexterity in justing and horsemanship, the whole circus being capable of receiving 1,000 spectators without the ditch it doth not appear probable that this hath been an entrenchment or fortified camp, its being too small for such purposes, and, more particularly, it is overlooked by an adjoining rising ground, from whence it might be annoyed by missile weapons. Some places, similar in form, have been esteemed camps fortified by the Danes. At about half a mile distance, we viewed a place called Mayborough, This is a hill, which arises gradually on every side, about 140 paces from the level of the lands below, forming the lower section of a regular cone. The ascent is on every side grown with oaks and ashes, and seems to have been covered with wood for ages, though no very ancient trees remain standing, yet the relics left by the axe evince it. The summit of the hill is fenced round, save only an opening to the east of 12 paces wide. The fence is very singular, being composed of an immense quantity of loose pebble stones, which seem to have been gathered from the river by their quality, and the similarity there is between them and the gravel of the bed of the yeoman. No kind of mortar appears to have been used here. The stones laid uncemented and in a heap, which at the foot is near 20 paces wide, rising to an edge, in height at this day, about 8 feet from the level of the interior plain. Here and there, Time has scattered a few trees and brushwood over the pebbles, but in other places they are loose and naked, both on the outside and inside of the fence. The space within is a fine plain of meadow ground, exactly circular, of 100 paces diameter. Inclining a little to the westward from the centre, a large mass of unhewn stone is standing erect, placed with the smaller end in the earth, on which some little ash trees have taken their growth, by striking their roots into the natural fissures of the stone. This stone is in circumference near its middle, 22 feet and some inches, and in height 11 feet and upwards. It is a species of the free stone, and has been gathered from the surface, and not one in any quarry or bed of stone. The inhabitants in the neighbourhood say, that within the memory of man, two other stones of similar nature, and placed in a kind of angular figure with the stone now remaining were to be seen there, but as they were hurtful to the ground, had been destroyed and removed. The traditional account given of this place, is in no wise to be credited, that it was a Roman theatre, where criminals had been exposed to wild beasts, and that those stones were placed for the refuge and respite of the combatant in his unhappy conflict. The name Mayborough induced us to believe, that this had been a British fortification, and that the name was a corruption of Maidenburg, a title given to many fortresses which were esteemed impregnable, and which were boasted never to have known a conqueror. But the large stone placed within the plain, and those said to have been defaced within the memory of man, confounded this conjecture, and prompted us to an idea that the whole was a druidical monument, and the name of it Maybury or Malberge. The elevated plain, the surrounding woods, and this strange, rude pillar, render it probable, that this was a temple of the Druids, where, under the solemn shade of the consecrated grove, they had exercised their religious rites, and taught the multitude, and also held those convocations in which they determined the rights of the people, and administered public justice. Perhaps when they were driven out of Mona, and fled before the Roman sword, they might fortify their sacred places and gather their people into such strongholds to resist the power which had avowed their extirpation. We viewed the church of Penrith in the afternoon a handsome new building of red free stone well galleried and ornamented in the modern style. The pillars are remarkable being one single stone the following inscription on a stone placed in the wall is singular A.D. MDXCVIII 1598 Ex Gravi Pesti Ceregionibus Hisce Incubuit Obieront Apud Penrith 2260 Kendall 2500 Richmond 2200 Carlisle 1196 Posteri Avotite Vosse verite Ezekiel 18th 32 M2. The plague raged in London in the 36th year of Queen Elizabeth's reign. In the churchyard is a very remarkable monument apparently of great antiquity. Two pillars are placed in a direction east and west distant from each other 15 feet. At the sides of the tomb two stones are placed with an edge upwards of a kind of semicircular form. These side stones do not at present show any marks of the sculptor Though some have conjectured they represented boars, the pillars are of one piece, formed like the ancient spears, and about ten feet in height. And shafts are round for about seven feet high, above which they run into a square, and appear to have terminated in a point. Where the square point commences, there are the remains of a narrow belt of ornamental frieze work. The stones are so much hurt by time that it is not possible to ascertain whether the upper parts of these pillars have been adorned with figures, or borne any inscription. I must beg leave to dissent from the opinion of those who have presumed that this was the tomb of some of the Warwick's, and as their reason allege, these were the representations of bears and a ragged staff, the device of that family. I am induced to believe that this is rather the monument of some British hero of distinction, THE CUSTOM OF PLACING PILLARS AT THE HEAD AND FOOT OF SEPULCHERS IS VERY ANCIENT. I HAVE SEEN IT MENTIONED IN MANY OF OUR HISTORIANS, THAT IN THE TIME OF RICHARD I, THE BONES OF ARTHUR, THE FAMOUS KING OF Britain, WERE SAID TO HAVE BEEN FOUND AT GLASTONBURY IN AN OLD SEPULCHER, TO DENOTE WHICH STOOD, TWO PILLARS, ONE AT THE HEAD, THE OTHER AT THE FEET, ON WHICH SOME INSCRIPTION HAD BEEN CUT, BUT COULD NOT THEN BE READ in the notes to a book entitled The History of the Rebellion, 1745. This monument is mentioned, and said to be set up in memory of a famous old warrior, Sir Ewan Caesarius, of great strength, who was renowned for his exploits in Inglewood Forest in the destruction of wild boars. In our next excursion from Penrith, we passed by the ancient seat of the Musgraves, called Eden Hall, at the distance of three miles, a stone structure built in the taste of the time of the Charleses Every part of the River Eden which we visited was picturesque and beautiful pretty lawns and meadows and here and there fine hanging groves were dispersed on its banks whilst the borders of the channel were beautiful with rocks and the stream flowed in meanderings or cascades Near to Little Salkeld on the summit of a large hill Inclining a little towards the north We had the pleasure of seeing a large and perfect druidical monument Called by her country people Meg and her daughters A circle of 350 paces circumference is formed by massy stones Most of which remain standing upright There are 67 in number Of various qualities Unhewn or touched with any tool and seem from their form to have been gathered from the surface of the earth, some are of blue and grey limestone, some of granite and some flints, many of them, which were standing, measured from twelve to fifteen feet in girt and ten feet in height. others were of an inferior size at the southern side of this circle, at the distance of seventeen paces from its nearest member, is placed an upright stone, naturally of a square form being a red free stone, with which the country about Penrith abounds. This stone is placed with one of its angles towards the circle, is near 15 feet in girt and 18 feet high, each angle of its square, answering to a cardinal point. In the most contiguous parts of the circle, four large stones are placed in a square form, as if they had constructed or supported the altar and towards the east, west and north, two large stones are placed, a greater distance from each other than any of the rest, as if they had formed the entrances into this mythic round. What creates great astonishment to the spectator is, that no such stones or any quarry or bed of stones are to be found within a great distance of this place, and how such massy bodies could be moved in an age when the mechanical powers were little known, is not to be conceived. Whilst we stood admiring this place, the following thoughts occurred to my memory. Mark yon altar, this wide circus, skirted with unhewn stone. They awe my soul, as if the very genius of the place himself appeared, and with terrific tread, stalk through this drear domain. Know that thou stands on consecrated ground, the mighty pile of magic planted rock, thus ranged in mystic order, marks the place where, but at times of holiest festival, the Druid leads his train. Mason's Caractacus My ideas wandered in the fields of imagination over the Druid's sacrifice of the milk-white steers, consecrated by the mistletoe. I reflected on the trembling enthusiastic multitudes, who here perhaps had assembled to hear the priestly dictates touching government and moral conduct, to learn the Druid's arrogant philosophy and superstitions, and cherish an implicit faith of the immortality of man's intellectual spirit, though in transmigration to reptiles and beasts of prey. Perhaps here, princes submissively have stood to hear the haughty Druid exclaim, Thou art a king, a sovereign or frail men. I am a Druid, servant of the gods. Such service is above such sovereignty. Mason's Caractacus In the number of stones Camden was mistaken as they are only sixty-seven in all He took many of his northern remarks from hearsay only from whence he was liable to the errors discovered in him As to the heaps of stones within the circle which he was told covered those slain in fight there is not the least appearance of any such thing since the monuments of Mona now Anglesey have been so learnedly visited and defined There is not the least reason to doubt this at Salkeld is a druidical monument from its similarity to those remaining there near to a place called nine churches we visited two caves the one hollowed in the rock of a circular form with seats cut in its sides the roof being supported in the midst by a rude pillar or mason work this is called the giant's cave the other cave is also circular with a stone table in the midst, There is no tradition to lead one to conjecture by whom these caves were made. Their antiquity is greatly to be doubted. They seem as if they had been the work of some religious for retirement. But the name of no such person remains to us. We also visited a place called Force Mill, near to Great Salkeld, where a cave was said to be the object of traveller's curiosity. Here we found some seats cut under the shelves of a rock, commanding a romantic view upon the River Eden, but no otherwise remarkable. The falls of the river, the hanging rocks, rich meadows and hills, clothed with wood, presented us with prospects, which amply repaid the disappointment our curiosity sustained. We lamented to see such extensive wastes and uncultivated lands adjoining to so beautiful a place as Penrith, whose situation must necessarily circumscribe its trade. The women of this country are remarkably beautiful. The bold, unintelligent stare, the fluttering, inconsistent pertness, and lisping nonsense, so characteristic of the sex in southern counties, are here totally neglected, for intelligent looks, clothed in modesty, and politeness united with simplicity of manners we had the pleasure of seeing some botanical paintings executed by Miss Calvin of this place which in delicacy of colouring and taste in the disposition of the foliage and flowers together with the justness of the work may vie with any painting of that kind in Europe to the honour of Lady Mary Lowther this young lady is under her patronage by whom it is not to be doubted her extraordinary merits will be made known to the world This place owns another very remarkable genius Mr. Fowle who, though blind from his infancy can perform any piece of musical composition on the harpsichord having the piece set by wooden pins in a board after the manner of a cribbage board which, after perusing by the feeling of his fingers from the strong retention of his memory he performs with great accuracy The way from Penrith to Keswick, though a good turnpike, is yet very dull and tedious, for during the course of eighteen miles, we met with nothing to amuse, till we arrived near the place. The mountains we passed are of various figures, and some very lofty, and as we still advanced nearer to Keswick, they straightened the valley in which we rode. We now gained a view of the Vale of St. Johns, a very narrow dell, Hemmed in by mountains through which a small brook makes many meanderings, washing little enclosures of grass ground which stretch up to the risings of the hills in the widest part of the dale. You are struck with the appearance of an ancient, ruined castle which seems to stand upon the summit of a little mount. The mountains around forming an amphitheater. The massive bullock shows a front of various towers and makes an awful, rude and gothic appearance, with its lofty turrets and its ragged battlements. We trace the galleries, the bending arches, the buttresses. The greatest antiquity stands characterised in its architecture. The inhabitants near it assert, it is an antediluvian structure. The traveller's curiosity is roused, and he prepares to make a nearer approach. When that curiosity is put upon the rack, by his being assured, that if he advances, certain genii who govern the place, by virtue of their supernatural arts and necromancy, will strip it of all its beauties, and by enchantment transform the magic walls upon his approach. The vale seems like the habitation of such beings, its gloomy recesses and retirements look like the haunts of evil spirits. There was no delusion in the report, we were soon convinced of its truth, For this piece of antiquity, so venerable and noble in its aspect as we drew near to it, changed its figure and proved no other than a shaken, massive pile of rocks which stand in the midst of this little vale, disunited from the adjoining mountains, and have so much the real form and resemblance of a castle that they bear the name of the Castle Rocks of St. John's. The delusion afforded us matter of laughter till we descended towards the Vale of Keswick, The town of Keswick, lying in a deep valley, was not to be seen till we were within a very little distance. As we descended the hill, a fine prospect opened upon us. The hills on the right of the road are very grand. Enclosures of meadow and pasture take up about one third of the ascent. The creeks are everywhere grown with wood, which climbs up shade above shade, and their crowns are covered with herbage and heath. Beneath us lay a plain of about three miles diameter, diversified with plots of corn, agreeably mingling with the meadows, and here and there, little copse of ashes. The Lake of Basnet, which has nothing remarkable to engage the traveller's attention, but a long canal of water, terminated the plain to the right. The Lake of Keswick to the left, around which mountains piled on mountains, made an awful circle, and seemed to shut them in from all the world. Keswick is but a mean village, without any apparent trade. The houses are homely and dirty. There is a townhouse in the market place, said to be erected out of the ruins of Lord Durnwater's mansion, but of the most uncouth architecture. There are very indifferent accommodations here for travellers. Nothing is more disagreeable to people who wish to see everything that is curious in a place they visit, than to meet with a drunken, sopiferous innkeeper whose small share of natural intelligence is totally absorbed, and who has nothing remaining of human, but his distorted image and his impertinence. Such was our host at Keswick. End of Part 3 Recorded in Penrith Church and Churchyard and Meg's Circle